We are recording today. We have a CSP iTunes site, OCCSP podcast. So if you go to iTunes, just type in OCCSP podcast. We have over 200 lectures up there. So please go enjoy them and say nice things about them so people, other people will enjoy them as well. Um, today we're very happy to have Professor Emeritus Lawrence Barron with us, who thank goodness is not coming from Northern California, but from the South, from San Diego area. Uh, Professor Barron held the Nassiter Chair of Modern Jewish History at San Diego State University from 88, 1988. I want to make sure I get the right, just, you know, <laughs> it was a joke, it's not 1888. 1988 through 2012, and directed its Jewish Studies program until 2006. He received his PhD in Modern European Cultural and Intellectual History from the University of Wisconsin, where he was a kicker for the Badgers, and he studied with George L. Moss. I just wanted to see if anybody paid attention. No one. Thank you. Actually, I was the quarterback. He was the quarterback for the uh, Wisconsin Badgers. He taught at St. Lawrence University, which I understand is a very beautiful place, cold in the winter, from 1975 until 1988. He has authored and edited four books, including The Modern Jewish Experience in World Cinema and Projecting the Holocaust into the Present, the Changing Focus of Contemporary Holocaust Cinema. He served as the historian and as an interviewer for Sam and Pearl Ulner's The Altruistic Personality, Rescuers of Jews in Nazi Europe. In 2006, he delivered the keynote address for Yad Vashem's first conference devoted to Hollywood and the Holocaust. His contribution to Holocaust studies uh, was profiled in 50 key thinkers on, on the Holocaust and genocide uh, in 2010. In the fall semester of 2015, he served as the Ida King Distinguished Visiting Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the Richard Stock University of New Jersey. Um, that many of you have heard him before, either at our uh, adult retreat a few years ago or uh, one or two other programs we've done. This program um, should be different from anything we've really done and maybe overlap some clips. It involves, it's a multimedia experience and um, I hope you all brought your popcorn. We're gonna turn the lights off back there. Muriel, will we hit the lights please? And we'll get started, thank you again. And uh, please join me in welcoming Professor Emeritus Lawrence Barron. Thank you, Ari, for inviting me. How many people attended the Riverside Retreat and heard me? And you still came back? Wow, amazing. Uh, if you did, you know I sing. I don't sing well. Um, my voice teacher was the same person who trained Meryl Streep uh, for Florence Foster Jenkins. <clears throat> uh, but uh, this is my introduction. I do overtures to my uh, lectures. Jews always were in pictures, from silent movies to the sound. Their waves of immigration on silver screens could be found. How to remain religious or become like everyone. Singing jazz was sacrilegious for a cantor's only son. And when the Zionists did persist, to, to go to the Holy Land. Jews from the diaspora made Aliyah to sow seeds in the desert sands. Our wandering's not over to escape adversity. Jews are eternal rovers. We embrace diversity. All downhill from here. As Ari said, we, you know, lech lecha, we start as a people, as immigrants, uh, and uh, most of our history has been as immigrants with brief periods of statehood. Uh, and uh, in the last 150 years, we've had a sea change. I hand out that uh, table that you have. Uh, I'm not gonna go into the details of it, but you can see the enormous changes Jews mostly, the largest percentage was concentrated in Central and Eastern Europe uh, in the 1880s, uh, very few in the United States and very few in Israel or in Palestine. Now those are the two largest communities. Uh, what does it, you know, why do people become immigrants? It's not an easy choice, uh, but there's push and pull. The push is obvious, anti-Semitism, discrimination, sometimes escaping death. Uh, certainly see where that fits into modern times. Uh, the push, uh, where people go, can be decided often by um, uh, immigration laws. 
Uh, you may think the United States had the first immigration laws. Actually, we didn't. Uh, England had the first one in 1905, uh, largely aimed at Eastern European Jews coming to uh, England. Uh, the United States then had them. Uh, and since then, uh, there's been a variety of countries that have either been closed off or, or whatever. Uh, why do people, uh, what's the pool? Uh, you want to go to places that uh, you can earn more money. Uh, you, you're trying to escape poverty. Uh, you want to go to places, obviously, where you'll feel, feel freer. Uh, and for, it's not often mentioned, uh, but if you look at the literature, especially on Jews leaving uh, Russia and Poland, uh, in the 1880s, a lot of rabbis spoke against immigrating uh, either to Palestine or to the United States. Palestine because the Messiah hadn't come and that wasn't part of things, but the United States was seen as the secular place uh, and if Jews went there, uh, they would lose their Judaism. And so uh, to make that shift is an enormous shift and think of what it entails. It often it entails learning a new language uh, it entails often changing your name, changing your clothing. Uh, you, you know, Jews wore traditional clothes that identified themselves. Uh, when they came to other countries, they often abandoned it. Uh, for parents, it often means losing control of their children uh, because their children are more literate in the societies that they move to than they themselves are, and they start making their own choices. They don't listen when they're told who to marry or what career to go in. Uh, and so there's a whole range of dislocations uh, that occur. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is how Jew Jewish immigrants have been portrayed in film. And for me, the important thing is that film emerges at the same time as this great migration. Uh, between 1880 and 1920, 20 million people left Eastern and Central Europe uh, for the United States. Uh, Two million of those were Jews. Uh, it's an amazing immigration. Uh, and the film industry in the United States dates itself to the turn of the century. Uh, it doesn't move to Hollywood until about 1913. Uh, but until then, uh, the filmmakers, and it was mostly Edison uh, who controlled the film industry. It was an East Coast industry, and he, had, he tried to get a monopoly uh, on uh, both production and distribution. Uh, and basically, immigrant films, film was a low-class entertainment. It was cheap. You didn't have separate theaters. Uh, and immigrants could go because they were silent movies. And even if they had the intertitles, uh, they usually hired someone to read the intertitles. Uh, so it was an immigrant medium, lower class. It doesn't become a middle-class medium. It starts becoming, uh, you have your first great successful movie, which we're now ashamed of, Birth of a Nation, is 1915. Uh, and then you start having the shift over to real movie houses and a more middle class entertainment. Uh, we all know that Jews played a very active role uh, in the film industry. It's not because uh, we had any special uh, skills or wanted to dominate uh, media. Uh, it was because it was what we would today call a startup industry. It had no barriers. You didn't need a lot of money. And most of the Jews who went into it were already involved in it in distribution. They owned Nickelodeons or little places uh, where they started showing films. Uh, they're the people who challenged Edison, uh, in part because Edison's films were very, they were immigrant fair, but they were all based on immigrant stereotypes, uh, very negative stereotypes. And so most of these early films about Jews are very negative. Uh, but they're negative about Italians, about Irish. Uh, this was, and people laughed at them. This was not the era of political correctness. Uh, but when Jews became more predominant and won their lawsuit against Edison, and then moved the industry to the West Coast, uh, and when World War I intervened to make American movies the most popular movies in the world, before then they were competing with lots of other industries that were much more developed, um, then uh, American Jews started making more films about Jews. There's this myth that, you know, the Hollywood movie moguls didn't make movies about Jews. Uh, between 1900 and uh, 1934, 315 movies which featured Jews as the main characters were made. Uh, and it was partly drawing on their own experiences, 
but partly because the audiences, either they were immigrants or they were children of immigrants. And the immigrant story was still popular. And the first kinds of films that were made, a uh, very typical story would be uh, Jews were in Russia. They were suffering pogroms or, or ritual murder trials or whatever, uh, discrimination. Uh, they would leave eventually, often with the help of a Gentile lover uh, of the Jewish woman, and they would come to the United States. Uh, but then you have the sort of realist immigration films, uh, which were based on the immigrant literature, and it was really about how tough it was uh, to make it in the United States, that it wasn't, the, the streets weren't paved uh, with gold, uh, and that it was very difficult. Uh, and that became, um, afterwards, uh, in the 1920s, after the immigration laws were passed and Hollywood was trying to go more mainstream, the stories became more upbeat. Americanization was about success stories. And that reflected a reality. And one of the amazing statistics I found in doing this research was in 1914, 100,000 Jews lived on the Lower East Side. In 1928, only 10,000. That's amazing, upward, you know, they're moving out, uh, they're moving uptown, they're moving to more upscale neighborhoods. And so the movies reflected that. But I'm gonna start with a movie uh, that is kind of in between. Uh, how many of you know the name Anzia Yazerska? No one, you should read Anzia Yazerska. Anzia Yazerska is one of the first great immigrant writers in the United States. Uh, a contemporary of Abraham Kahn and Mary Anton. These are all uh, great immigrant authors uh, from this period. And she literally made this transition. Her parents came from Russia. Uh, she grew up, you know, she worked in the sweatshops. Uh, she decided on her own uh, to become a writer and to get an education. Uh, her fortunes changed when she went to Columbia University and became basically the lover of John Dewey. Uh, but she was a very talented writer. She came out with her first collection of short stories in 1919 called Hungry Hearts. Uh, MGM at that time was trying to, um, they had what they called the uh, acclaimed authors series where they would bring famous American authors to write scripts. This was to raise the level of American movies. She came, she was showered with money. She wrote this very honest script about her immigrant experiences based on her short stories, and then Hollywood changed the entire thing. Uh, that happened to her one more time, and then she went back to Brooklyn, uh, and for 20 years labored pretty much in obscurity, and was only rediscovered in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, as a great author. But Hungry Hearts is, in the original story she wrote, is about a Jewish family that comes to the United States. They're fleeing. In fact, the first scene of the movie is uh, the father is a Hebrew teacher uh, in Russia. Uh, the Cossacks come in and forbid him to teach Hebrew, and they turn over the tables, and they almost start hitting the children. And it's the mother, uh, Hannah, who protects the children. In all these movies, by the way, the father is often what's called the pathetic patriarch. He's backward, he's religious, and the mother is the active figure. Think of how different movies have become in their portrayal of Jewish women. Uh, but in these early films, it's always the mother uh, who's the strong figure, and the father is kind of this arcane, he's out of it. So they go to the United States, uh, and uh, they discover, they end up in a tenement. It's really dark, they're scraping out. The, the mother takes in laundry for a rich woman uh, and does it. Uh, their daughter uh, becomes uh, a, uh, she eventually ends up at a sweatshop, but initially she's a janitor in her building uh, to help them earn the rent. Uh, one of the things they learn very quickly is if they don't dress right, no one respects them. So David, uh, who's the son of the landlord, or the nephew of the landlord, uh, comes collecting uh, the rents, and when he first sees uh, the daughter, he looks at her and She's wearing her immigrant clothes and he doesn't pay any attention. And then she's told, you gotta go out and buy new clothes. One of the traditions, by the way, when you went to Ellis Island, uh, came in in Ellis Island, was to take pictures in American clothes and send them back uh, to the old country, to the shtetl, 
And so uh, this is um, the basis of the story. Uh, but one of the things about the mother, Hannah, is she wants to uplift her daughter and her family. And at that time, there were these usually German Jewish agencies, relief agencies, uh, that schooled women on how to run an American household. And one of the things you were supposed to do, even if you lived in a tenement slum, was paint your kitchen white, get rid of the wallpaper, uh, and put down wood floors instead of linoleum. Uh, and so she saves up a money, enough money to do this. Uh, she paints it, and the landlord comes in, and now he's heard that his son is dating this greenhorn, uh, who he thinks is just a gold digger, and so he looks at it and he raises the rent. He doubles the rent on her, even though he himself is probably a German Jewish immigrant, it never says that. But this is an amazing scene from Hungry Hearts where she has just learned that he's raising the rent. She's gone to the police, said, in America, can they do that? Uh, and uh, the policeman says, yeah, they can do whatever they want. It's their property. And so she goes back to her tenement slum. Rosanova, one of my favorite names. She was a kind of a staple in many of these immigrant movies. You can stop it and move it to the next one. I'm, I'm shortening this because I know we're on a bit of a schedule. Uh, the point is she ends up, that scene lasts for almost six minutes of her destroying her kitchen. They try to pull her away, she won't. The police eventually come and take her away, all while she's yelling, you Cossacks, you Cossacks. Uh, it ends up in litigation. Uh, the landlord sues her, uh, and her future son-in-law, David, defends her. Now, in the original book, what happens is she loses the case and they're evicted. In the screenplay, they win the case, uh, and they move. Within a year, they're living, uh, you know, in, in an upscale neighborhood. Uh, everything works out. Uh, when uh, Yazerska saw this, she was outraged that they had changed it. Uh, she felt it wasn't true to the spirit. Uh, but this was Hollywood, and this was uh, trying to appeal to a middle-class audience. In fact, the scenes of her destroying the property and of earlier scenes of criticizing the conditions Many critics uh, said, what ingrates these immigrants are. They come here, and then they're angry about the conditions they live in. Uh, and so probably the producers of the movie were right. The most famous, of course, of the immigrant movies is not really about immigrants. It's about the second generation raised in the United States is the jazz singer. Uh, and it's about the conflict of cultures, generational conflict is a key to almost all these movies uh, that are made between 1920 and 1934. Uh, and of course, in this one, uh, the son of a rabbi, uh, who uh, actually of a cantor, uh, is, is supposed to uh, chant Kol Nidre or help his father chant Kol Nidre, but he's out singing in a jazz club. Uh, and that's one of the opening scenes. Uh, the movie became more important. It, it's not a great movie, but it became very important because it was the first sound movie. Uh, and uh, it, even though they don't talk, uh, for them, there's only one scene of Jolson talking. Uh, most of the scene, but the scenes where he's singing, you can hear him singing. And Warner Brothers was betting a lot of money on this one because if you went to this new system, you had to re-outfit all the theaters. And they owned the technology. They ultimately didn't win out their, their version uh, wasn't the one that was used, uh, but this movie was tremendously important. It's also tremendously important uh, because Jolson was called the world's greatest entertainer at the time. He was known for singing in blackface in the original story uh, and a play, uh, The Jazz Singer, uh, was originally called The Day of Atonement. Um, there is no blackface and there are no black songs. And uh, in both of those, uh, Jake, uh, now Jack, 
uh, goes to sing uh, for his father on Yom Kippur, even though it's the day, the night of the premiere of his big Hollywood show. And he's told he will never sing again on Broadway uh, if, if indeed he uh, doesn't show up. He doesn't show up and we end both the play and the story thinking he's gonna stay, he's, you know, he's staying with tradition. Uh, the movie is very different, uh, again, appealing to the middle class audiences, giving them an upbeat ending. Uh, but I wanna show you one of the early scenes, which is also interesting because it has exterior shots of the Lower East Side uh, as well. And um, run. Jolson invented the moonwalk. But there it is. There's his father. interesting things you may not realize, but cantors were crossover, what we would today call crossover stars. They often sang operetta, had recording careers. Uh, some of you may remember Jan Pierce when you were growing up. You know, you used to buy Jan Pierce albums. They weren't just of Jan Pierce singing uh, songs uh, that were Jewish. Uh, and this theme actually of the jazz singer existed long before the jazz singer. There's a Yiddish story about a cantor in Vilna uh, who, his lure is opera, and he goes to Warsaw to sing in the opera, and there it doesn't end up so nicely, because these are Yiddish stories, and it ends up destroying his family, and he dies after singing on Kol Nidre uh, and returning. Uh, made into a movie, by the way, in 1940, called Overture to Glory, uh, a Yiddish film. But in this one, you know, here Jack, who has changed his name, the first thing he does when he, when we see him after you know, he's grown up into an adult. He's on the West Coast. You get as far as away as you can from, uh, from New York. Uh, he's singing in a San Francisco nightclub called Coffee Dan's. And what is he eating? Ham and eggs. Uh, so you know, you know, it's only as he sort of comes back. He gets to Chicago and he hears a Yosela Rosenblatt uh, concert. And then he gets back and, to New York and then the pool is there. But in this one, he goes back on stage. The, you know, we see him go and replace his father. But the last scene is him singing in blackface, doing the Jolson numbers that people already knew, uh, because this was to bring the audiences in. His mother is felling, uh, even though uh, he's not become a cantor, and even though his uh, Shiksa girlfriend is standing in the wings. Uh, so this is an American tale. Uh, and uh, a tale of success. Yiddish films looked at this process of immigration very differently. Uh, and I want to show you a brief one, a uh, clip of one, uh, by the author who, next to uh, Shalom Aleichem, uh, Sholem Ash, who was the most popular Yiddish author in interwar, uh, interwar United States. Uh, and he may, wrote this amazing uh, play uh, and book uh, called Uncle Moses. 
And Uncle Moses is about a Jewish patriarch who came from the uh, shtetl, uh, and he still has ties. He still gives money to the synagogue there, uh, and they're always hitting him up for money. Some things never change. Uh, and uh, he owns a sweatshop, and he, he's this transitional figure. He sometimes speaks English, played by the great actor Marie Schwartz. He sometimes speaks English. He sometimes speaks Yiddish, depending on who he's talking to. Uh, and in some ways, he's very traditional. In other ways, uh, he sees himself as kind of this paternalistic boss. He has all these workers in his sweatshop who work long hours in bad conditions with old machines. Uh, but, you know, if they need medical care, he'll pay for it. Uh, he builds a synagogue for them uh, so that they have a place to go where there's a rabbi who's brought from their town. Very paternalistic. Uh, and he ends up marrying uh, one, uh, the daughter of one of his workers, Masha, who's younger, who's beautiful, and who doesn't love him. Uh, she loves uh, a guy uh, who is the operator, Charlie, the union organizer who organizes a big strike against Uncle Moses. And the strike ends up, uh, you know, Moses is out because Masha has a child. She goes into postpartum depression. These are Yiddish films. Uh, and uh, he can't take care of the business. His uh, brother uh, takes over. Uh, Sam, he hires sterkers, uh, strike breakers. And the workers are trying to decide whether they should stay on strike. I love this scene, though, because it shows this kind of synthesis of Jewish culture, traditional Talmudic, you know, rabbinic Judaism with modern day union organizing. So, Uncle Moses. basically disappear from American movies. That is another lecture. Um, if you want to read about it, read either uh, Tom Doherty's book about uh, uh, Hitler and Hollywood, or a book I don't like as much, but Ben Irwan's book. But it has to do partly with the big studios had German markets. Uh, they didn't want to have Jews as subjects. But it also has to do with an internal censorship uh, that existed starting in 1930, but really didn't get enforced until 1934. There was a lot of criticism of the movies as being Jewish controlled and pushing Jewish agendas. 
and uh, a code, what was called the Production Code Administration, uh, was formed, and in 1934, uh, a man from the Legion of Decency, which was the Catholic League, uh, took over, Joseph Breen, and basically I've worked with him. He looked at every movie. There was like a 10-page form, and there were certain things you couldn't do. You couldn't say bad things about other nations. You couldn't say bad things about other religions or ethnicities. And so basically the way you handled it was just not show them. Characters became generic. Uh, there's some exceptions to that, but for the most part, you don't see Jews as lead characters in movies until the 1940s, until World War II, and then they're always soldiers. They're always part of platoons. Uh, they're the second generation. They're Americans. They're usually wisecrackers from Brooklyn, but they're there with the Italian guy and the Irish guy. The Band of Brothers format started in the, you know, we're fighting uh, racism and we're fighting uh, prejudice abroad. Uh, we have to show that the American army is multicultural. Uh, even the remake of the uh, jazz singer in 1951, the jazz singer, in that case, Danny Thomas, is a returning veteran from the Korean War. Uh, and his father is not in a little Stieblach uh, in the middle of you know, an immigrant neighborhood, but in a very wealthy affluent section of Philadelphia, where the synagogue dates back to 1790, and George Washington had visited it. Uh, and so this sort of Americanism is the main theme. Uh, but in the 60s, you start having a shift away from that. And that's as a result of Vietnam, racism. I don't know how many of you have been watching the Ken Burns uh, Vietnam thing, but a lot of things happened in the 60s. And one of those was the Black Power Movement and Feminist Movement. Uh, and one of the results of that was what we now call identity politics movements. Uh, ethnic pride movements back then. Uh, and Jews were part of this. For Jews, it was partly a kind of delayed realization of the Holocaust, uh, fear and pride over um, what had happened in the 1967 war, you know, what looked like a, a terrible uh, defeat turned into an amazing victory. Uh, but for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, Jewish characters now start appearing in movies. And also because this production code was dropped it was found illegal. Uh, and so it's dropped by the late 1950s. And now you start having characters who look Jewish, you know, Barbara Streisand, uh, you, you, you know, I can, uh, Woody Allen, um, you know, there's a whole one, Dustin Hoffman, uh, these characters, Elliot Gould, who, you know, and who play Jewish characters uh, and are recognizable. And now there's, um, among this new generation of rebels, a kind of looking back at the American Jewish experience, immigrant experience, and looking back at it through a kind of nostalgia. Uh, but also what was lost, worrying about what was lost. And Hester Street is really to be understood as one of those movies. It's recovering a great work of immigrant literature by Abraham Kahn, um, but it's also a feminist, it becomes very much a feminist story, and it's about how much tradition was given up in the process of assimilation. I'm sure how many people have seen Hester Street? Not everyone, all right. I, I always assume people have seen it. Uh, this very low budget movie, which was made for $400,000 uh, and had people who weren't very well known then, uh, but are very well known now, Carol Kane, uh, Doris Roberts, uh, an amazing movie. It ended up winning an, uh, a nomination for an Academy Award for Carol Kane. Uh, and this amazing, amazing story is about Jake, uh, once formerly Yonkel, uh, who came to the United States, gave up, he became Jake, he shaved his beard, he fancied himself as a kind of an American dandy with the women. He didn't bring his wife and children and he got interested in a dancing girl. Uh, because that was one of the places where immigrants met, was at the dancing hall, uh, Mamie. Uh, and he's having an affair with her because he doesn't think his wife is coming, but she shows up. And she shows up with his son. Uh, and the rest of the film is really about the struggle between these two. Uh, he's trying to get her to stop wearing the scheitel, uh, to wear nice looking clothes and dress like an American woman. Uh, Doris Roberts, who play, plays her landlady, is trying to help her do that. 
uh, saying you can be a good Jew and still you know, look like a modern American. Uh, but um, Gittel, uh, played by Carol Kane, uh, holds on to her tradition even though her son's payas are cut off uh, and his, his name, Yossel, is changed to Joey. Uh, and the father just pushes this American agenda. Well, it's slack season, the father comes back, Doris Roberts has finally persuaded uh, Gittel uh, to wear her own hair uh, and to wear a more modern dress, and this is what happens. Hauling away on the bellows. You can't pee up my back and make me think it's rain. Never, never. Go. Who knows what you do? Maybe kill her. You want to call a policeman? Go. Call a policeman. I will tell him what he's doing in this house. He will be back, that one. Don't worry. I don't want him back. Enough. So Gittel becomes the feminist hero in this. And we think, you know, she ends up marrying his boarder, who you saw, Bernstein, who is a Talmud scholar, uh, who works in the same sweatshop. Uh, but she's changing, too. By the end, uh, she's wearing Western clothing. Uh, she's decided that she's going to call her son uh, Joey, uh, and um, she's going to open up a shop and work the shop so her husband can be a uh, uh, work in the, um, uh, you know, on the Talmud. But the reality is he starts getting interested in the business too in the last scene and starts asking all sorts of questions. And so it's not clear. Um, Joan Micklin Silver, I had a chance to interview, I said, what do you think became of Joey? You know, 
And she says, I think he's probably pretty American, even though he's raised by this mother because she becomes, uh, she's part of the process. It's just gonna go slower for her. Um, American Jews, immigrant movies about American Jews because our period of immigration is over, they still occur, but they're rare. And when they do, they're often done through this nostalgic lens of something that's been lost uh, and is not gonna be regained. Avalon would probably be the best example. Uh, and when Jews appear, recent immigrants appear, they're usually not major characters uh, anymore. Uh, so I don't know how, how many of you saw the movie The Immigrant a couple of years ago about a Polish woman coming in the 1920s. There's a Jewish story there, but it's not the main story. The main story is about her. Brooklyn, the big sick. There are just a different generation of immigrants. So if you're gonna make the immigrant story, that's where it's gonna be. Not so in Israel. Uh, Israel is a nation of immigrants, probably even more so than the United States. Uh, and initially, you know, the immigration that was undertaken, we often forget about the very secular and socialist roots of at least the Zionist movement, not necessarily of everyone who came, but of the Zionist movement, uh, who came not just to be in a land where they were free, but to create a whole new vision of Jews. Jews who performed physical labor, Jews who weren't so intellectual, uh, Jews who were close to nature, uh, and that was their goal. And so the first immigrant movies about Jews, about the original settlers in Israel, are really Westerns or Middle Easterns, uh, because they're really about these pioneers, they call themselves Chalutzim, who come to, uh, to Israel or to Palestine to what is a very hostile land. They're wearing the wrong clothes. I mean, in this scene, you'll see they're wearing their Russian clothes as they go into the desert. Uh, it's a barren land, uh, and basically, uh, they have to fight for everything they can, you know, to, to remove all the rocks to deal with the natives, in this case, the Palestinians, uh, though that's not, term is never used, uh, but there's always warfare in this particular case. It's that the uh, Palestinians won't let them use uh, the, uh, the well in the town. And so, just to give you a sense, this was one of Israel's first important movies that got some international attention. It's still actually a very good movie to watch. They were 10. establishing shot, but it's, uh, I want to get to other stuff. Uh, most of the Jews, the dominating, until 1977, the, certainly the dominating political force in Israel uh, was the Labor Party, uh, and those were mostly Ashkenazi Jews, and they were mostly modernizers. Uh, they believed in a much more secular culture. Uh, but all of a sudden, they had to contend with, in the 1948-49, Jews either being driven uh, or leaving on their own accord uh, from Arab countries, Jews who hadn't been Zionists, who often were lower class, because if these were former colonies, let's say if you were coming from Morocco and you were a French Jew, if you were middle class, you didn't go to Israel. You went to France. Your kids had gone to French schools, uh, to the Alliance Israelite. 
Uh, so uh, it was the poorer Jews, often more religious Jews, uh, who came. These were the Mizrahim. Zionism didn't know how to deal with them. Uh, basically, they believed in what was called, we called it the melting pot. In Israel, they call it absorption. Uh, but absorption was really about, you know, changing your name. I mean, it's all the same. Changing your name, changing your clothes, getting new careers. Uh, and uh, there it co collides, of course, with the Western Jews who were supporting Israel. And uh, this is one of the first great, the first Israeli film to win a Golden Globe and to be nominated for an Academy Award, uh, Salah. Uh, it's about Jews coming from Yemen. It's, it's very funny. Uh, it's still a great movie. Uh, it's very unflattering to the Israeli elite, but contemporaries in Israel see it as a racist movie against the Mizrahim because the main character is alcoholic, lazy, scheming. Uh, but this kind of movie, they call them borekas, after the delicacy uh, that you can buy that are Middle Eastern delicacies. These kinds of movies for many years were the most popular movies in Israel among descendants of Mizrahim. Uh, but look here at the contrast uh, between Salah arriving with his family and the American Jews getting off the airplane. is Topol, who, who like uh, Doris Roberts, never ages. Who, by the way, is not a Mizrahim. For most of, Isra in Israeli film, the 60s and 70s, even into the 80s, these Bureka movies were the common ways of dealing with the immigrant experience. But something happened in the 1980s and 1990s. The Russians were coming. Uh, the Ethiopians were coming. Uh, and it really changed, I mean, the Russians. It's amazing how, you know, that they took in a million Russians, a country of five million. Just, just astounding. Uh, and they didn't blend in as well. Uh, I mean, they're part of the Israeli landscape, but there's still a lot of Russian newspapers and whatever. Uh, and of course, uh, with the um, Ethiopians, uh, there was racism, there was a misunderstanding of, a distrust of whether they were really Jews uh, and whether, you know, whether they needed more, uh, needed to be converted. Uh, and uh, the Moroccan Jews and Jews from Iraq, Morocco, Algeria, Tunis, uh, Egypt, Libya, uh, decided to start looking at their own experiences through a different set of lenses. One of the things that meant uh, was Israel, you know, part of it, learning a new language. You come to Israel, you learn Hebrew, you go to Ulpan, you make an Israeli movie, it's in Hebrew, even if it's about immigrants. Uh, I don't think that Topol's Hebrew would be as good uh, upon landing as it would eventually become. Uh, but 
uh, in these, what you start having are movies that are filmed in large part in the native language of the immigrants. I don't know how many of you saw uh, The Dove Flyer, uh, the movie about Iraqi Jews, or last year's film about Iranian Jews, whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, one of them's in Farsi, the other one's in Arabic. Uh, Russian films, uh, Late Marriage, for example, largely in Georgian. Uh, that's something entirely new. There's this ethnic pride has come uh, 40, 50 years after it happened in the United States. Uh, and um, I could go through a whole bunch of these movies. They've been coming out. Uh, but the ones that, to me, are the most striking and that I've written about are the ones about Ethiopians. Uh, and the problems they faced, both racially, ethnically, and religiously. Uh, and I don't know how many of you have seen uh, Live and Become, which I think is probably one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, but it is about an Ethiopian boy who, by the way, is not Jewish, he's Christian. Uh, but um, his mother uh, has a, a newborn she was taking, a, a, a child she was taking with her who dies in the desert. She, they were flying to, trying to get out as well. They were in the desert in Sudan. And to get him out, she finds a Jewish mother uh, who will take him and claim that he's her child. And he eventually gets adopted by an Israeli couple. Uh, and uh, it's very multi-ethnic. The mother is French. She speaks French at home as much as she speaks Hebrew. The father is an Egyptian Jew, and he speaks Arabic. There's a grandfather, uh, and the uh, kid eventually is going to learn Amharic, uh, get, is given a book on Amharic so he can learn his native language again. Uh, but this is an amazing scene based on things that really happened. Uh, some of the news footage is real, not the one of the rabbi. Uh, but go. Boiti. Levad. Tishkaf Gan. Tachmeil. Tachmeil. Tachmeil.
and I remember the name of that movie, Baba June, is about um, Iranian Jews, done primarily in, in Farsi, even though they're in Israel. Uh, in any case, um, let me shift over. Uh, the same thing has been happening in Europe. Uh, there are now, actually the country that makes the most films about Jews, and about Jewish immigrants, is France. Uh, England <clears throat> has been making a number of, Mexico has been making, Argentina still uh, has productive Jewish filmmakers who are exploring the immigrant experience. Uh, and it's partly because of American multiculturalism. Uh, it's partly be in some cases because of the experiences like the Junta in Argentina in which uh, even though Jews weren't explicitly targeted, they were targeted <coughs> as Marxists or as uh, Freudians. Uh, and it's, it's partly because these cultures are also, in ways that the United States and France aren't, deeply officially Catholic. Uh, and so there's all these tensions that exist. I wanted to show you one of my favorite movies, Like a Bride. How many people have seen Like a Bride? Not many. This is a movie worth renting. It's called Novia Quetavia in, uh, in Spanish. Uh, it is about uh, Jewish Mizra not Mizrahi, Sephardi, uh, coming from Turkey uh, just before World War I. Uh, on the one hand, fitting in fairly well because they spoke Ladino and it was a kind of entry language. Uh, on another hand, uh, not so well uh, because Mexican society, the way it teaches it, is the descendant of two great cultures. It's what they call the great Mexican family, or three, you know, Mayans, Aztecs, and the Spanish. Uh, there's no room for Jews in there, even though there's lots of people who came to Mexico. So while Jews were more of a curiosity, they're a small number, uh, the Jews themselves were riven between the Ashkenazi uh, and the Sephardi, very separate, uh, and, but very Jewishly nationalistic in a way that American Jews weren't, certainly in the 1950s, 1960s. Very Zionist, usually, very aware of the Holocaust, uh, and this movie, Like a Bride, is about a young woman, Oshi, uh, whose parents, you know, she's Sephardic and her parents want her to marry, they want her to be like a bride uh, and only marry a Jewish guy and that's gonna be her mission. She wants to become an artist, so we have that going on. But she tries to remember what her parents are like. Uh, this is one of the opening scenes and it's just a beautiful scene, so. son los papás de mi papá allá en Turquía. Cuando era niña, creía que estas fotos eran ilustraciones de la Biblia. ¿Cómo van a ser, Oshinika? Me decían. Si es tu tía Zafira y tu tía Alegre. Pero sí. De alguna manera son ilustraciones de la Biblia. ¿Por qué no? Y esta es la foto de bodas de mis papás. Esta soy yo a los siete años. No me parezco en nada como soy ahora, ¿verdad? Cuando era niña, los límites eran imprecisos. Nadaba en dos aguas. Muchas veces me persinaba, por si las moscas. Yo no sé cómo trabajas con judíos. Aunque te pagan bien, el dinero no rinde. Se va como agua. ¿Quién sabe por qué? Qué bárbaros. Mira nada más cómo lo dejaron. Híjole. Ojalá que nadie se dé cuenta que, que yo soy judía. Vamos, Oshi. Se vaya a molestar tu papá si llegamos tarde con la comida. No le digas a nadie que, que yo soy judía. Está bien, pero no le digas a tu papá que te traje a la iglesia.
I don't know how many times I've shown this clip and there's always someone who grew up in Mexico and they say, you know, in the audience and they say, that's my, you know, we had a, a, a Mexican nanny. She used to take us to church. Uh, it's a real typical experience, uh, not part of the American immigrant experience. But much of this is a very Jewish movie. Much of it is spent in the Jewish subculture of Hashomer Hatzer, uh, which one daughter belongs to. And then the daughter from the Ashkenazi family is different. So I'm going to bring this to a, a, an end with one last clip. Uh, this is a film from France, uh, La Petite Jerusalem, Little Jerusalem. And it is about lower class uh, Jews from North Africa, from Tunis, uh, who have immigrated later. Uh, Tunisia was one of the better places for Jews to be, and they remained later. And they are often living in the same suburbs as Arabs who have left those areas. And so it's about those tensions. These are distinctly new tensions uh, to come in and have the Middle East, uh, Middle East conflicts intrude on neighborhood relations. Uh, but it's also traditionally about the, the daughter uh, wanting, she wants a French education, she wants to study philosophy. Her mother uh, is very much involved in uh, Jewish folk religion, uh, Tunisian folk religion. Uh, and so this scene sort of captures that. Tiens, en fait, j'ai oublié de te dire. Il y a Eric qui a appelé pendant que tu étais à la fac. Eric. Bah oui, le garçon que maman t'a présenté, tu te rappelles pas Si, si. Et qu'est-ce que je lui dis s'il si rappelle Rien, je lui dis rien, Mathilde. Bon. Mathilde est une balchouva. Elle a marié un très orthodoxe. Tu perds ton temps, Laura. Tu as la chance d'avoir accès à la vérité de la Torah. Alors pourquoi t'étudies ces philosophes Il y a aussi une vérité dans leurs pensées. Tu te trompes. Les philosophes, c'est comme des tireurs à l'arc. Ils visent, ils atteignent le milieu de la cible. Simplement, c'est pas la bonne cible qu'ils ont choisie. La bonne cible, elle est juste à côté. C'est Hachem. Et c'est nous qui essayons de l'atteindre. Allô Eric C'est Eric. Bonjour. Ça va euh, Oui, oui, très bien. Euh, en fait, je t'appelais parce que euh, ta mère m'a dit que tu, tu donnais des, des cours de philo. Tout à fait. Et euh, en fait, ça, ça, ça m'intéresse. Alors, euh, t'es libre quand Je sais pas, je, je vais réfléchir. Mais pourquoi tu veux faire de la philo je, je, je vois pas le rapport avec la médecine. Je crois que je vais me, je vais me spécialiser en, en psychiatrie. Tu m'appelles une synagogue Alors, ah, non, excusez-moi, les synagogues. Euh... Tu, tu prends combien pour les cours 20 euros. Ah ouais, 20 euros quand même. Quoi quand même Non, 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 mais je voulais dire 20 euros quand même. Voilà, pas mais cher. ça va pas, non Non, non, mais... Euh, tu, tu vas tout faire rater. T'arrêtes à tout de suite. Non, ok, 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 j'arrête. Je t'ai demandé de faire quelque chose Non, Laura, non, non, Laura, je te promets, on prend... Bon, écoute, Eric, non, je te je rappelle, excuse-moi. Je voulais pas te... Mais tu crois que j'ai besoin de tes sortilèges pour parler à un homme Bien sûr que tu as besoin, tu sais pas, tu prends, regarde, tu lui raccrocher au nez. Mais parce qu'il est stupide. Il est très bien ce garçon, il est beau, il va être médecin. Il me plaît plus. Euh, euh, à chaque fois que tu dis ça, moi, en Tunisie, à ton âge, j'étais déjà avec votre père. Mais fais-moi la paix, t'as Tunisie, t'as qu'à y retourner. Raciste. J'ai pas envie d'être amoureuse. On ne peut pas vivre sans les amoureux. Qu'est-ce que tu vas faire dans la vie si tu tombes pas amoureuse Philo, maman, de la philo La philo, la philo, c'est pas ça qui va remplir ta vie, c'est pas la philo qui va donner des enfants. Philosophy won't give you children. Just to summarize this, uh, and like I said, there's lots of these movies coming out, and they have a market now. Why are they, partly, why are they being made? Partly it's because of Jewish film festivals. There's an outlet now for these movies that are very narrowly cast. Uh, but um, in 1908, the very term, the... Uh, Melting Pot was popularized by an, uh, a Jewish playwright uh, who was a Zionist, uh, Israel Zangville, uh, in Broadway play, and he wrote about how America's this culture and every, what's gonna happen is not that you're going to uh, assimilate to some sort of standard culture, rather all the different cultures are gonna come here and what comes out as the American is all gonna be what is eventually melted down. 
but he thought each group would lose its singular identity. About seven years later, a uh, very famous professor by the name of Horace Callan, uh, who was also an immigrant Jew, uh, came up with the theory of cultural pluralism. Uh, and he saw America's identity as leaning in that way. And in many ways, these movies are constantly oscillating between those two. Should I become part of the broader society or should I maintain my tradition? So let me just read you what uh, Callan wrote in 1915. He says, American civilization will ultimately be a multiplicity in unity, an orchestration of mankind. And as in an orchestra, every type of instrument has its specific timbre and tonality founded in its own substance and form, as every type has its appropriate theme and melody in the whole symphony. And in society, each ethnic group is the natural instrument. Its spirit and culture are its theme and melody. And the harmony and dissonances and discords of them all make the symphony of our civilization. We are still contending with that in 2017. Thank you.